Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Welcome everyone to One Symphony. I'm Devin Patrick Hughes. I'm really excited this week to have composer, conductor, singer, and collaborator Jenny Brandon with us. Jenny has received commissions to write for soloists, small ensembles, opera companies, and orchestras. Jenny has also had her works performed at the Kennedy Center and has more than 20 albums in her works are published and distributed by all of the major publishing companies, or most of them anyway, including her own Jenny Brandon Music. If that wasn't enough, she happens to be a master yogi and a snorkeler. So Jenny, it's so great to be speaking with you today. Welcome to One Symphony. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to chat with you today. I'm really excited to have you because uh, I uh, have a personal stake in this. I'm performing one of your works coming up, <laughs> The Five Frogs, which is a, such an amazing piece, such a beautifully rich and profound and playful work uh, that tells a fantastic story. Like you can't ask for much more and a piece of music. Can we just start right off the bat talking about The Five Frogs, what the inspiration was, what the intentions were, and actually when you composed it. I'm not sure actually when you composed it. Sure. So uh, Five Frogs was written, and I was thinking about this the other day. This is written when I was um, at USC, University of Southern California. And oh, wow. so th that would have been, oh gosh, I'm going to really date myself now. Um, <laughs> 2002 ish. Oh my gosh. It, it, it sounds like it could have been just a couple of years ago, but obviously there are a couple great recordings out there and we can plug those as well. But yeah, that's surprising to me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, I was like, Ooh, it's been a while, but yeah, I wrote this um, and I worked with the, um, the woodwind quintet that was the, the honors woodwind quintet at the time. And when I was writing this piece and working with my teacher. And so at the time, um, I was living up in Los Angeles, and I used to go and visit the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Huh. And at LACMA, they had the Japanese pavilion, and it was this beautiful. It's this beautiful building that you walk up through it, and you know, they've got these Japanese screens and paintings, and it's just it's a really like serene, calm place. But fast forward to the moment after I went through the Japanese pavilion, which I loved, and came to the gift shop, <laughs> and found this little book called One Hundred <laughs> Frogs. Mm -hmm. And this book is really adorable. It's a small book and it's a hundred different translations of a Basho poem about mm -hmm. frogs. And so what was interesting about this book is that there's limericks, there's poetry, there's, you know, little songs, and they all tell about the frogs doing different things all based on this poem. And so I thought, how much fun would it be to write this piece about, you know, we've got five instruments in the woodwind quintet and to tell a story of each of the instruments as one of these frogs and let each movement of the piece be about highlighting or featuring one of these instruments acting as a frog in that movement. So that's the premise of the piece and where the idea originally came from for Five Frogs. 
Yeah, I love this book. Anybody can pick it up. It's called actually 100 Frogs. I guess in COVID times, we're all going for shorter concerts. So maybe we're, we're quite lucky that you didn't decide to do all 100 Frogs. You only did five. Exactly. <laughs> but it's by Hiroki Sato. It's a fantastic little read for kids or adults. I mean, it's, it's so zen. I, I love books like this. I can really see how it inspired you. It's for five instruments, the flute, the clarinet, the oboe, bassoon, and the French horn. Can you talk about how you pair different instruments with the different aspects of the frog's life? Sure. So I began to think about the personalities of these instruments. And so, for example, like the first movement leaping, I thought, oh, well, how much fun it is that this frog is going to leap around the pond. And a clarinet is so good at that. And, you know, get to play with the idea of the agility of the instrument and mm -hmm. really digging into thinking about the registers and the ranges of these instruments and how those could also be part of telling the story. I love this uh, movement, this first clarinet movement. It's because rhythmically, it's almost like you never quite land on your feet. You know, you've got these <laughs> accents and these offbeats that feel like onbeats. It's very much like, you know, a frog could jump right into the water and miss the lily pot, you know? So. Exactly. <laughs> like a, a very spazzy frog. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the idea I wanted in this movement was to have the frog, you know, leaping all around, supported by the other frogs, maybe that are standing by kind of going, what's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of the playfulness that I wanted to have in this first movement. And then, you know, the oboe to me, and I'm, I write a lot for double reads. I've had good fortune of getting a chance to get to know a lot of double read performers over the years and write a lot for them. And, you know, and this piece is kind of a, an early start for me of really loving the oboe. And so the second movement on the lily pad allows the oboe to sing and contemplate. And I think it's something that, you know, we all love about the oboe is the song quality. I feel like the oboe is, is such a vocalist. I'm a singer as well. And I always equated the oboe to being like a soprano. And mm -hmm. so I really wanted to allow the oboe to sing in this movement and really tell yeah. this story. Yeah. Of sitting by the pond and contemplating. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think of that because I, I don't, the, the woodwinds are instruments that I have actually never picked up in my life. And I think of the oboe as something, oh, someday, you know, when I have a couple of years off, I would love to learn <laughs> that instrument. And it is my favorite instrument. And I, I notice ah. you also love Samuel Barber, and of course, there's the beautiful first symphony from Barber. Of course, Barber stole from Brahms, and Brahms has mm -hmm. the ob uh, has the violin concerto, uh, right. <laughs> which uh, the the violinist gets very jealous in the second movement when they have to stand on the rostrum, as I think Josef Joachim said, mm -hmm. uh, for for a few minutes while the oboe takes over. And I would agree with you. It's just and this movement is so, and it evokes almost the. Um, Concierto de Arangues, hmm. a little bit. I don't know if you thought of that at all, but with this beautiful uh, oboe melt, which is quite difficult. I mean, this is a real, this, this is all kind of concerto work.
Yeah. You know, I think what I wanted to do was to allow the instruments to shine in the ways that they were really good at doing and saying that, you know, when I wrote this piece back way, way back in the day, you know, when I was, was still a student, I think this piece was also an exploration for me to learn more about the individual instruments and what they were capable of. And so, yeah, really digging into the qualities of each of these instruments was a big part of um, the work that I did while I was writing this piece as well. You have so much great chamber music. For many composers that I kind of know, like um, solo instrumental writing, kind of chamber music writing, it's kind of a means to an end of, of working into the bigger Mm. Uh, forms, the operatic, the orchestral, the symphonic, the film scores. Uh, you kind of have your niche, it seems, in all these small forms. Like all of your your dozens of recordings are solo instrument, chamber ensemble, woodwind trio, of course, soprano. Can you talk about that life as a composer? Because I think not many composers kind of just uh, live in that area. I really love chamber music and I really love the intimacy of it. And, you know, the one thing that I, I believe in strongly also is this idea of collaboration with the instrumentalists. And so I think part of my world of living in chamber music has been making these great connections with performers over the years while I'm working on pieces, really getting to intimately know the instruments and getting to know what the instrumentalists want out of a piece that I'm writing for them. And it's allowed me to really, I think, get a deeper look and view into what the instruments are capable of. And I really love it. I mean, I, I do love being in the chamber music world and it's, it's such storytelling, I find in a, a very intimate level. And, and that's the thing that I really enjoy probably the most is the storytelling that I'm able to do in these smaller chamber music settings. Thank you. 
you do these online summer composition workshops that are essentially focusing on writing for solo instruments, the latest of which uh, is for the marimba. Mm -hmm. And you're working with the Heartland Marimba Quartet. Do you like every two years, do you start another instrument? I mean, what, what are the, what are the tools or your go-to kind of library when you're creating music for solo instruments that you might not necessarily play? Um, as far as study and research, I really love to dig into repertoire and just dig into speaking a lot with the instrumentalists that I'm working with. Um, I think that my biggest thing is that I make sure that each time I work with people, I go into it saying, yes, I know something about your instrument, but you know a heck of a lot more than I do. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to ask you for your expertise and I'm going to be really open to what they suggest. And I found that that served me really well because it allows me not only to get to know the performer, but it allows me to come from an honest place and say, I can always learn more. There's always more that I don't know. And by being sort of open and willing to also get feedback, you know, when something doesn't work, they can say, this doesn't work. And this is the reason why I put that into my toolbox and I build and I grow on that. So each time I work on a new piece, I feel like I'm building and growing my toolbox of, of knowledge for the instrument. the instrument or maybe the effect or um, the, uh, the, the the phrase or something you wrote that surprised you the most, the something that you maybe got wrong or that you were like, wow, I had no idea this instrument could, could make those kinds of sounds? <laughs> um, gosh, that's a good question. You know, I think what it is, and, and maybe, maybe I'll just use bassoon for an example because I've written for bassoon a lot um, over the last couple of years is trying to be delicate with the bassoon in the upper range and being like, oh, well, yes, they can play up there, but you know, you have to be really careful and you can't do anything wrong or it won't come out sounding right. And then as I worked with more wonderful bassoonists, discovering that, no, they're, they're perfectly capable of playing beautifully up there. And as a matter of fact, they, they do it really well. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was one of the things that I've discovered that there's such a beauty in that range of that instrument and that, you know, we as composers shouldn't be afraid to explore that and to ask our performers to try things out. So that's, that's always a nice discovery is to say, oh, I don't have to be so cautious. I can, I can stretch it a little bit more and, and the performers will rise to the challenge or, or they'll say, no, don't ever do that again. <laughs> so either way, it's a win. <laughs> so as long as we're picking on the, the poor bassoonist, I think um, this movement of from the five frogs that features the bassoon, of course, I think there's no better instrument to portray the bullfrog right. than the bassoon. This is the kind of piece that the bassoon is like just... Yeah, like you know he's going to own this sound and the the grumbling and the timbre 
of the bullfrog. Um, was that, I mean, obviously I think that was, that almost wrote itself. Can you talk about that decision? It, it did. I mean, it seemed obvious, but <laughs> at the same time, I also did it in a way to really allow the bassoon to shine because, you know, in repertoire, bassoons, sometimes they get stuck in the bottom and they're doing the, you know, bump, 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 bump kind of stuff, which is mm-hmm. a lot of fun too. Um, mm-hmm. But but I wanted the bassoon to be able to, um, you know, use use the register and the range of the instrument in a in a playful way, but in a, in a way that was also serious, you know? And, and so, yeah, it, I think when I was setting up this piece, the idea of the bassoon being a fool frog was absolutely probably, is probably the first idea I came up with <laughs> because it seemed so obvious to really allow the bassoon to shine through in this, in this movement. This is a six movement work. It's it's quite symphonic. It's quite dramatic. Do you have a favorite movement from the five frogs? Oh gosh. Um, you know, I'll say my favorite movement. What's funny is that I actually I actually really love the last movement, epilogue, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it brings together all of the voices of the frogs and allows them all to sing together while they're sitting around the pond. And so mm-hmm. I love I want to say the tie-up movements or the idea where all the themes come back together and you go, oh, I've heard this before. Oh, you know, I know this story. And I feel like it's a way to connect with our audience and connect with the performers to bring everything back together. So I, I, love, I love that idea. So maybe that's my favorite movement. <laughs>
it's indicative of an amazing, a phenomenal piece of music when you have the quality of, yes, it's programmatic. You wrote this about something trite and something, yet at the same time, something that is thousands of years old with these haikus. But also, if you took away that program, you could listen to it as a, a quintet or a sonata or something. And I feel you would have the same story. You would get just as much out of it. You would have the same kind of listening experience. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I do write very programmatically. I tell stories with all of my music and I, and I love that. I love being programmatic, but yeah, I like to think about this as something that, you know, if it's sat by itself and someone heard one movement, they could say, oh, this is lovely or, oh, this is funny. And, you know, get maybe create their own story out of it while they were listening to it as well. So speaking of programs, you have uh, quite recently a uh, a few uh, pieces that have been released. One of them is the Double Helix, mm -hmm. and that's a collaboration with the sculptor Susan Hawkins. Can you talk about the Double Helix and the dance of life that you portrayed with this music? And and that's for getting back to the bassoon again. Very, sure. <laughs> a lot of bassoonists are going to be very very much fans of ours after this podcast. Exactly. Um, it's for bassoon and piano. I will say that all things return to the bassoon, so that will definitely make, yeah. make them like yeah. us even more. Um, yeah, so Double Helix for bassoon and piano um, was inspired by the sculpture Double Helix. And it's two separate sculptures. And I want to say they're like, you know, they're not very tall, 14 inches, 15, something like that. And there's two separate ones. And they kind of dance around each other. And the sculpture is by actually a friend of mine, Susan Hawkins, who lives just a few blocks away from me, <laughs> which is amazing. You know, I, I got to meet her through yoga, actually, and got to know her as a oh, sculptor. Wow. And, and, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's all, it all connects around. And so I, I actually had purchased the sculpture from her and I looked at it and I said, someday, Susan, I'm going to write a piece about this. And so I waited for the right project to come along. And Kristen Schillinger, who's the bassoonist on the recording, commissioned me to write this work. And, you know, we love this idea of these two entities, these two dancers spinning around each other, but never touching. And this idea of dancing and floating through the air, you know, and this intimate relationship that also happens when the bassoon and piano play. And so, you know, telling this story of both quiet reflection and dance and coming together and coming apart in this beautiful, continuous dance. And so, yeah, the sculpture just, it was sort of another piece where as soon as I realized the project for it, and I knew what the piece was that I was going to be writing, I'm like, this just fits right in. This is exactly what this sculpture was waiting for, was for me to set this, uh, this piece.
You mentioned you mentioned that you did yoga with Susan. You happen to be a, a master yogi, a teacher, a practitioner, mm-hmm. and it's clearly made you a better composer. With COVID times, you're involved in some workshops to kind of work with wellness, musician wellness, mm-hmm. personal wellness, psychological wellness. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that in, in your work and how you share that with others? Sure. So I think that, especially in these times, that we all really need to find some calm and grounding in our days. And I think it's really important, and especially with musicians, for us to take good care of ourselves because, you know, for singers, you singers, their instrument is, you know, their body. But for all instrumentalists, you know, it's all about this long haul of sitting in chairs and rehearsing and running off to performances and rehearsals. And so I think it's important for everyone to find a way to calm and ground themselves and to give themselves permission to find stillness and also to find movement. And so I feel like yoga really offers all of that. This idea that you can have some meditation, you can have some stretching, you can have some time to be still, time to move. And some of the projects that I've been putting together recently have been about combining both yoga, meditation, and also um, health and wellness. I've been working with my um, friend and clarinetist, um, Marianne Brenneman, Um, who's out in North Carolina. And she and I have been putting together a program where it's designed to support, you know, sort of the whole, whole body, you know, mind, body, and bring people to a place where they have some tools to be able to think about what they eat, how they run their lives, and to give them a little bit of sense of how to take care of themselves through simple and even gentle yoga. For me personally, what got me into yoga, there were two things. And so one of them was the fact as a composer, we sit so much, like I just sit Mm -hmm. and sit, Mm -hmm. work and sit. (laughs) And I knew that I needed to, you know, take good care of myself, you know, personally and get some more movement in my life, you know, do something good for myself that wasn't just always about the work. Because Mm -hmm. what I discovered, I guess this is more of another aha moment too, is like, we can only work so much before we run out of things to say, if we're not taking care of ourselves in mm. other ways. And so if we don't take care of ourselves in other ways, then we we become lacking in the ability to be creative. You know, mm-hmm. if, if our health is gone, of course, we're not going to be creative. You know, if our brain is full of fog because we're not taking care of ourselves physically and mentally, then, you know, we're, we're not good to anybody. 
um, especially ourselves. (laughs) So, so that was definitely a moment for me. And the second thing, this is a little bit personal, but I'll just share with you guys um, that I had been diagnosed with thyroid cancer back in 2008. And and so, you know, 2009 had surgery, went through treatment and all of that and, you know, continue to, you know, be monitored and and take care of myself for that. And that's what shifted me towards really saying, okay, I got to do more things that, you know, not that you can necessarily stop cancer or anything like that, but I wanted to take care of myself really going forward from there. And so those are sort of two moments for me that really turned me towards yoga and then eventually into all the many hundreds of hours that I've done of training because I got hooked Amazing. on it. Yeah. And, and just, it's become, it's become a thing that I do as well. I talk to people about the idea of being the hyphenate musician and <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. And that we're all hyphenates. Like, you know, I'm a composer, conductor, yoga teacher, you know, everybody's got their hyphenate and that's, good because it's all part of who we are and it all reflects in the work that we're doing creatively. That's incredible. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that story, Jenny. Sure. It's interesting for you. You're a conductor as well, and mm-hmm. and I thought that was that was really cool because most composers I work with, uh, they're not conducting or they've conducted a couple times and then they never want to do it again. Right. Something <laughs> like that. So can can you talk about how those two aspects uh, play together? And I guess a lot of your music is smaller ensembles, so you're essentially. I mean, for me as a conductor, I love smaller ensembles because. Mm-hmm. It's so much, I mean, it's so much more fluent in your communication. Like if you have a 80 piece orchestra, you know, you sometimes can't see the back of the first violin section right. <laughs> um, and so much gets lost in translation. So can, can you kind of talk about how you got into that and how that affects your composition? Sure. Well, um, funny story is I started first conducting as a drum major in high school. <laughs> so- <laughs> Funny story, I did not make the cut as a drum major in high school. Oh, no. I had to stay in the low brass. 
Oh dear. <laughs> so you already got me beat. Well, there we go. There I was. Yep. Up there uh, telling the brass what to do. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I always loved conducting. It, it was interesting. Always from early on, I really loved it. And, and conducting for me has served the purpose where it's allowed me to tap my toe into a whole bunch of different places. And so, you know, um, I've done a lot of choral conducting. I had, I've, I had my own community choir that I conducted for nine years. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. You know, church choirs. And then beyond that now I will conduct, I conduct other people's works, but also, you know, recently I conducted my um, one act opera, Three Paderewskis, oh, cool. um, yeah. which is a whole long project, but I got to conduct that in Los Angeles, in Poland, and then at the Kennedy Center as well for this large project that we worked on. And so I find that for me, the conducting serves as a, a way for me to be really connected to the music and connected to music, especially when I'm conducting my own music in a very different way. I feel like I put on a very different hat when I'm conducting my music. And even though I know my music, I come into it with a conductor's hat on and I go, oh, I can't believe the composer did that. Why did they write it that way? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, wait great. a second. That's I should great. make a note and change that. <laughs> yeah. And I can tell that like in your score, you can always tell, I think, a score from someone who has practical experience mm. with musicians, with ensembles, as opposed to someone who is more stuck in their head. Yes. And, and that's, I, yeah, the conducting has served me in that way because yeah, it's a, it's a different, it's a critical way that we look at a score when we're preparing it you know, to conduct it, to teach it, to get inside of the composer's head and get inside of everything. So yeah, it's absolutely served me on the other side of writing music, but then also score, score preparation is a huge part of what I do as a composer and being really fussy about that. <laughs> yeah. So I'm guessing for you, metronome markings are, are more of like a guideline or are you at the point now where you're pretty like, if I have a metronome marking, I want you to go that speed. You know, I think of a lot of my stuff as guidelines in pieces. Okay. The thing that I've learned also with working with instrumentalists in chamber music, and especially with like soloists, is that I really want to give them the freedom to explore within, you know, within the, the piece, explore some of that tempo and that movement. And so when I'm writing, like, and especially with a, with a solo piece, I leave a lot of space in there for them to push and pull, you know, speed up, slow down, take a breath here, because I want it to be... I want them to internalize it. And so, yeah, so like I might have tempo markings and there may be some places where I'm like, yeah, you know, I really want you to do this tempo, but there's still some give and take there. I think that's an important thing that I feel as a composer is to give the performers a chance to do what they do best, which is interpret. You're essentially like a one woman producer. Uh, can, yeah. <laughs> can you give any advice for younger composers or people who are during COVID trying to say, well, it was hard to get, you know, my music played with orchestras before and now they're not playing anything. Do you have any kind of wor words of wisdom in that regard? I say go write a whole bunch of solo repertoire <laughs> right now. Like that would be my one piece of advice for them is to write and, and also to use this time to reconnect with people that may play your music in the future or connect with people that you can start to form new relationships with. You know, even though we're socially distanced doesn't mean that we can't be socially connected. And so I think that that's a really important thing for us, especially as composers to do right now, is that we need to be, continue to make those connections and, and doing it in a way, I think, to think about how we can serve the greater music community. So how can we serve as composers 
the community. We can provide you know, music that they can play now. We can offer to support them in their online concerts. We can offer to promote their concerts. So it's really continuing to have that connection that may lead to performances now, may lead to them in the future, may lead to new projects in the future, but we have to keep that connection with the people that we know and continue to, to foster those relationships. Well, you have a lot of connections in addition to a performance that I'm involved in with the Arapaho Philharmonic mm-hmm. coming up in just a few days here. Five Frogs has been recorded twice, mm-hmm. once on a CD called American Breeze, and then a CD that you produce called Songs of California. And I understand you also have a new release that is hot off the press of your work in the city at night. Mm-hmm. Jackie's vision of this is just fantastic Be- because of just what you said is the idea that like, People don't necessarily think about the English horn in that way or think about it as, I don't want to say not as a serious instrument, but just it's that instrument that does that thing once in a while over here. (laughs) And so she really wanted to bring light to the English horn and started looking um, for, you know, repertoire by women composers that she could, it actually started off as a project um, and it suddenly then turned into a CD and this whole recording project. And so... In the City at Night um, was written um, for a friend of mine, Ryan Swallen, who was an oboist English hornist. And when I wrote the piece, I had never written for English horn before. And so I, he was like, let's write an English horn piece. And I'm like, great, you can walk me through the process. <laughs> and so I really learned a lot from him about writing the English horn. And so, you know, that piece has been, you know, it's it's been around for a couple of years. And, and I I love that because it's sort of, again, the sort of niche sort of place of being an English horn, you know, people will be like, oh, you know, here's the one, you know, piece of repertoire for solo English horn. But with Jackie putting the CD together, it's really wonderful that it's a huge variety of different styles of writing for the English horn. And mine is, you know, it's very lyrical. It tells about this story of, you know, walking through city streets at night as the lights as the lights twinkle on. And I wanted to explore with the English horn, both the lyrical quality of it, of course, but also the fact that the English horn can do more than that. It can bounce around. It has agility. And so I wanted to show that in this piece. And so I play with both aspects in this work. And so, yeah, if you, if you can uh, go out and, and grab this CD of Jackie's do, it's a great addition to your, um, your collection, you know, and probably maybe the only CD you have of all English horn music out there <laughs> on, in your collection. That's wonderful. So that's Jacqueline LeClaire's Music for English Horn Alone. If you want to check Jenny Brandon's music out, we have The Five Frogs, which is recorded on American Breeze and Songs of California. And that's where any major uh, music distributors are, wherever you get your music, you can find that. You can also find Woodsong for solo oboe on the album From Earth and Sky, the music of Jenny Brandon. And there's a lot more albums that we will uh, reference in the show notes. 
And Jenny, I'm really looking forward to performing your music and performing more of it in the future and more collaborations. And it was really so wonderful to speak with you today. And thank you so much for being a part of One Symphony and putting all this incredible art into the world. Thank you, Devin. This was really, really enjoyable. And thank you so much for having me on your show. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you to all of the incredible performers who performed the works of Jenny Brandon and the record labels who made this show possible, including Blue Griffin Label, MSR Classics Label, New Focus Recordings, and courtesy of Jenny Brandon. Jenny Brandon's Wood Song was performed by oboist Lindabeth Binkley on her new CD, From Earth and Sky, Music of Jenny Brandon. Double Helix was recorded by bassoonist Kristen Schillinger with Jed Moss on piano on Bassoon Unbounded. In the City at Night for Solo English Horn comes from Jacqueline LeClaire's new CD, Music for English Horn Alone. All movements from Five Frogs come from Jenny Brandon's CD, Song of California. Thank you for joining us. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org. For info on composer Jenny Brandon, you can find her online at jennybrandon.com. That's Jenny with an I. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being part of the music.